Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian Higgins. And I'm the other host, Aaron Salvato. We're hosts together. Don't put yourself down like that. I just meant like, there's two people in the room. You are the first one who spoke and I am the other one. I know, but other other sounds lesser. And I don't, I don't want you True. developing poor self-esteem. True story. When I worked at my church and I became a youth pastor in my first year, I co-pastored with another youth pastor. And one of the people in the church thought it would be great to make a sign for our door as a joke, as a gag. But they put it on our door and it said... Paul Prelly and the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was lame. But and, and his friend. I'm obviously over it because I'm ruining our intro by talking about it. Let's get to the episode. What are we talking about today, Brian? Today we are continuing a series on some of the tough questions that have arisen mm. because of the whole COVID-19 situation. Yeah. We're going to continue diving into... More questions that we think are relevant, that we think are probably on people's minds. At mm. the very least, they're on our mind. Definitely. So we're hoping that we're not the only two crazy ones that are <laughs> thinking about this stuff. But hopefully there will be some commonality and some of the things that we're thinking and what you might be thinking. Yeah. I mean, so when I get on social media, I see so many people talking about questions like this. What is going on? What is God doing? So it's definitely something that's kind of in the public psyche right now. In the last episode, we began by asking the question, does God use things like COVID-19 to punish specific groups of people? And we looked at that and we concluded, no, we don't think that we should be looking at this situation and trying to find the specific sinners that God is judging. Like if your whole theory of what's going on in COVID-19 is that God is judging left-handed people with a shoe size of more than 10 that have lied in the last week, you're probably missing the point. That doesn't seem to be what anything in scripture points us towards. And most of all, we see that our call as Christians is super clear. We're not here to be the judges. The one major judgment we have is that everyone is a sinner and everyone needs the hope of the gospel. So rather than turning this situation into, you see, God is mad at you guys over there. We should all be saying God has rightful anger towards all sin, including ours, but we need to find the hope that comes from the gospel. Yeah. And we see his response to that sin, the thing that has made him angry. His response to it was the cross. It wasn't to destroy humanity. So yeah, that was our first episode. And the second one we talked about, does God mainly use things like pandemics and disasters to punish the world? And we kind of concluded on there, that's that's not really how he normally operates. It's important to read judgment passages in context. And we had started this conversation about the context of the story of Scripture, the meta narrative of Scripture, which was revealing to us that if you look at the story, God's heart, his overarching heart is one to save people, not to destroy them. Yeah, we see that the clear theme throughout the scriptures is that God wants to restore people back to right relationship with him. Yes. He wants to remove the obstacles that keep us separate and welcome us back into his presence. And mm. That's one of the themes that we're going to have to pick up as we begin our our new questions for this episode. Yeah. One of the things that I think we need to talk about is a lot of people see a difference mm. between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Right, like, like they're two gods. 
Yeah, almost like they're two different people. Like two different the God characters. of the New Testament seems like cool, long hair, hippie Jesus. Like, that's okay, bro. Like, we can still be friends. Like, that's kind of the way that a lot of people perceive the New Testament Jesus. Whereas the God of the Old Testament often gets looked at as this angry dude, just totally ready to throw lightning bolts at anyone who doesn't agree with him. Have you heard some of this distinction being made? Yeah, I can't remember what pastor it was, but he made this analogy that a lot of people view God the Father in the Old Testament, you know, Jehovah, Yahweh, as this very kind of strict conservative, like almost like he used to be a police officer and now he's a judge and he's just very <laughs> law and order minded. And then Jesus is like his liberal son, like, dad, you know, just think about their feelings. God, let, down, me, man. let me help them, dad. You know, the, which is, which is not the story the biblical authors paint at all. Exactly. So I don't want to run and say we believe in this distinction. What I do want to pull out of that distinction is that it doesn't come from nowhere. Hmm. It's not just people randomly deciding, well, I bet the old one was mean and the new one was cool. <laughs> right. That actually does come from different moments in the Old Testament where it really does seem like there's an angry God. Well, it really does look like... Can, can I jump in there on something? Sure. So I've seen, I've read through Facebook debates, which is always the greatest place to develop your theology. Is it's, Best source for information. It's, it's the public square of the day. But I've seen these conversations where people are talking about an issue, and someone says, well, this is what the Bible says, because look... God said it here in Deuteronomy. And then someone will counter with, well, actually, Jesus says this. And it's then it becomes this fight over whose word matters more, God or Jesus, almost like you're pitting them against each other. And what I would argue is we can't ignore what God said in the Old Testament. We can't ignore what Jesus said in the New Testament because they're the same person. So we have to look at both of these things and figure out not which one is right, but how do these things fit together? How do these puzzle pieces fit together in the one story God is trying to tell? Exactly. There is a synthesis. There yeah. is harmony that can be found. We might need to look at it a little bit to try to find that harmony. Right. So I want to look at some of these Old Testament moments where it really does look like a God of wrath just gets so mad that he does start targeting specific groups of people. Mm. Like, and when uh, we think about... Like, like, can you give some examples of that? So thinking about the way that God reacted to the Egyptians, to mm. Pharaoh not letting his people go, it right. really looks like Pharaoh and God just have a personal vendetta. Mm. And if you're reading it with a skeptical lens, it can almost look like God just got petty. Yeah. And was like, you know what? I could make you just let them go right now, but I'm going to throw a bunch of frogs at you first. Right. Yeah, that's a specific group of people. And then we see all over the Old Testament, Israel is getting targeted quite often by God for, for their disobedience. God sends the prophets to warn them and say, hey, if you keep disobeying me, I am going to deliver you into the hands of captors like the Babylonians and, and other people. And so that seems like this clear example of God targeting specific people as well. Yeah, so we see these different moments where the wrath of God gets displayed through what looks like really specific targeting. And yet in the previous episode, we concluded that this COVID situation, which kind of looks like some of the targeting that happened 
in the Old Testament. We concluded that's not what God is doing in our current situation. It sounds like we need to have a bigger conversation of what God's wrath is really all about and how it links to his justice. Mm -hmm. That's good. And I could see why people would think that because it oftentimes when you read the Old Testament seems so clear, you know, you mess up, you tick God off and he punishes you. And then you go into that verse, if my people humble themselves and pray, God will heal us. And it's kind of this idea of, you know, if you do the bad things, you get punished. That's just always how God operates. And then Mm -hmm. when you pray and when you repent, you know, then God will take away the curse or the disease. And that's where a lot of people are at. They're thinking God is punishing us specifically for doing bad things. Some people in America sometimes can be so tunnel visioned where we don't even think about how this is a global pandemic. And we're just thinking about our own country and, and, and how this is all affecting it. This is, this is where I would go, Brian, is I would say when we come to the question of, you know, does God's wrath boil over and target specific groups of people? Do we see that in the Bible? Yeah, we do. We can't deny that those things do occur. But here's what I would argue. I would argue that all of these things fall under what we can call covenantal justice. Scholars Sounds like a great TV show for like Judge Judy's next move. (laughs) Judge Moses in Covenantal Justice. He'll throw the 10 tablets at you. I would watch that show. You Uh, would too. I would. Don't deny it. I would. Absolutely. If it were like seven minute YouTube episodes, you'd watch it. Oh, I would. I would watch it if it was a half an hour show. That sounds great. Moses chucking stone tablets at people. Back to what I was saying, covenantal justice is this term that scholars use where basically it's talking about God's justice acting as a part of his covenant. So it's like there's a purpose. When justice happens, it's not just justice for the sake of justice. It's happening because it fits into this covenantal plan that God has. When we read stories in the Old Testament about God's justice, It's easy to just look at them by themselves in sort of a micro environment where it looks just as simple as you committed the crime and God punishes you. That's how it operates. But I would just argue that there's something bigger happening behind the scenes. When we end up looking at just those individual stories, it looks like God's the ruler. He's got rules. When people break those rules, he gets angry, he gets upset, and he decides it's wrath time, and he just dishes it out on people Mm. that he doesn't really seem that happy with. And it looks like it's as simple as, well, you broke the rules, so now you get this punishment. And people look at that and say, well, God's the ruler of the universe. He gets to rule the way that he wants to, and if he wants to dish that out, then that's his right to do. Yeah, I mean, in God's defense, he can do that if he wants. He's God. But that doesn't seem to be the way that he actually rules. And that's why I'd use the term covenantal justice. It's justice not purely for justice's sake, but justice that serves a higher purpose, which would be God's covenantal love for humanity. It might be a good time now to talk with our audience about what even is a covenant. So at its simplest... A covenant is an agreement. And when we see covenants in the Bible, what we're talking about are partnerships between God and man for a specific purpose. This is a theme that's all throughout the Old Testament. God is constantly entering into covenants. 
He does it with people like Noah, like Abraham, like Israel as a whole. He has a specific covenant with King David that points us ahead to Jesus. Hmm. And we, the audience, as we zoom out from the story, we get to see the purpose behind each of these covenants. God is building towards something that he wants Israel to be his new people. He wants to build a particular kind of kingdom of priests that's pointing all people towards God. And through Israel, God's doing this incredible, wonderful thing. He's going to bring the Messiah. He's going to bring the Savior through this people to bring rescue to the entire world. Yeah, like it's really all about Jesus. That's the point of the of all the covenants. Really, it's about rescuing and redeeming the world. And that's the crazy thing about covenants is God could just do all that on his own if he wanted to, but he involves humans in the process. And see, right from the start, when humanity sins against God, he doesn't hate them and say, I'm going to smite you with my wrath. No, he loves them. And let's just stop right there. Right from the beginning in Genesis, right? What do we see? God looks at Adam and Eve who have sinned, and he starts telling them, here are the consequences of your sin. You are going to one day die. Your body is going to wither away. It's going to be really hard for you to work the ground because guess what? You cursed the earth now. Childbirth is going to be hard. There's all of these things that he's listing. But then he says to them, I've got this prophecy that one day I'm going to bring my justice and it's going to destroy the snake. It's going to crush the head of the serpent, um, the one who deceived you into eating that fruit. And, and I am going to rescue you and save you. That's the promise. And so it's not humanity sinning and God says, I hate you, so now I'm going to smite you. He loves them and he's always cooking up this master plan in the background to rescue them. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at Genesis 3. After God asks some initial questions of Adam and Eve, he launches right into how he's going to fix the problem. Mm. He doesn't begin with, you stupid people, I can't believe, blah, blah, blah. Like, he doesn't go there at all. Right. He figures out what's going on. He gives Adam and Eve a quick moment, hopefully, to come to their senses and just ask for some forgiveness and grace. And instead, they shift to the blame. They say it's not really their fault. And God then looks at the situation and said, this is a problem. This is now broken. But here's what I'm going to do to fix this problem. God knows that people can't save themselves. Their sin has to be covered by something. And so that's why right there in the garden, when Adam and Eve discover their nakedness. So their problem is they're naked, they're exposed, they're in this vulnerable position, but God doesn't leave them vulnerable. He doesn't leave them exposed. He loves them and he's cooking up this plan to rescue them. God kills the lamb and he uses the skin of that lamb to cover them. Right there from the start, he's sending these messages and these symbols that point towards the greater truth, which is the lamb that is Jesus. So then what we're seeing there is right from the beginning, rather than Adam and Eve need to figure out how they're going to win God's approval back, God says... I'm going to provide the sacrifice mm. 
and through that you're going to be okay. It, yeah. It's now not about everything in the story to this point was about Adam and Eve's work and their work was sinning and defying God and defining good and evil for themselves. Hmm. Now, normally like you think about if somebody does something wrong, they need to fix it. Yeah. They like need it, to own their mistake. It's interesting that he doesn't give them the 10 commandments at this moment. It seems like that'd be the perfect place in the story. Like you broke it. Here's the 10 ways you fix it. Do these things. Don't do these things. But his focus is like, hey, you broke it, but I'm going to fix it. Yeah, I'm going to provide the thing that makes you okay. And even what's interesting is one of the big issues in that moment is, isn't that Adam and Eve discover they're now separate from God. They create that themselves. They discover that they're vulnerable and exposed. Like you, not to be weird, but no one feels strong in their nakedness. Everyone just feels like vulnerable and open and, and exposed and weak. So there's kind of something to be said for that of when we look at the sinfulness of man, it creates weakness and vulnerability. It causes Adam and Eve to kind of lash out at one another rather than to stay united. And instead of God saying, here's all the things you're doing wrong, say you're sorry and fix them. It's just, I'm going to provide the way. I'm going to make the path forward for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what brings me to my main point in this is God has this master plan from the beginning. So when we go to the stories of punishments and wrath and warnings of judgment, if we understand them under the lens of covenantal justice, which again is saying that God's justice happens under, it's not random. It's not just, oh, like God got upset one day. And so he smote these people, but then the next day he felt kind of gracious. So he was nice to these other people, even though they sinned. It's that when we read the story of the Old Testament, his justice is always happening underneath the operational banner of his covenant and his plan. So we can see when God is punishing Israel, right, which is what he does. He punishes Adam mm -hmm. and Eve. He punishes uh, Moses and the Israelites in the desert. He punishes the kingdoms under King David's rule and, and other rulers. It's not him punishing just because he's indignant of sin. It's because they're straying off the course. If Israel just gives into their own sin, their own lusts and passions and desires, they're actually going to destroy themselves. Their sin is going to consume them. We've seen this over and over again in the story where God gives them over to their sin and they end up basically almost destroying themselves by getting themselves captured by these other nations. So they're going to destroy themselves. Their sin will consume them. They're going to get wiped out by other countries. They're going to go die off themselves from civil wars and rebellions and for doing stupid things like eating diseased animals in the middle of the desert. So if Israel gets wiped out, who can't be born? Jesus. So my, my idea here is that by God punishing Israel when he does, he's protecting Israel from themselves. So right now we're just looking at Israel. And so then what we're saying is these moments of wrath and judgment coming from God on Israel, they're keeping them from the things that would hurt them. It's almost like the dad, a dad is willing to violently tackle his son on the yeah. front yard if it keeps him from running into the street. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it is rough. Like there are times in the Old Testament where somebody in the, the children of Israel sins and it's like they get stoned to death and their entire family gets stoned to death. It's really, 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 really harsh and really, really hard. 
And when we read that story just by itself in kind of that micro environment, it seems like this is what God is like. When when people sin, he wants other holy, righteous people to pick up stones and hit them until they're dead. But in the reality, one, God is working together in kind of this ancient society that was a very harsh and rough society. So he's working together with their own systems. But even beyond that, he is trying to keep them alive. He is trying to keep them through the desert, through the wilderness. He is trying to, when, when there is sin in the camp, it's like a virus. It's like a disease that can spread and infect everybody. And so it's this very strict, very harsh situation where God is thinking of the big picture. If Israel dies, if they don't make it through the wilderness, if they don't fear him and respect him enough where they're trusting what he says, then Jesus can't be born. They're going to die off and the Messiah's line is not going to come through. And so kind of what I'm arguing is God is not just protecting Israel from itself. Through his justice, he's protecting the world from itself. Um, like by the same token, there's wicked nations like Egypt and Jericho and the Philistines, the Amorites, the Amalekites. They're getting wiped out left and right. And when we read these passages, we often just say, oh, well, it's because they're bad people and they deserved it. They deserve to be wiped out. It's just God using Israel as a tool of his justice because Israel is the good people and they're the bad people. So therefore, the good people wipe out the bad people. But that doesn't hold up quite right because Israel themselves are often sinning just as much as the other nations. Israel is committing child sacrifices. They're worshiping other gods. They're messing up left and right. So it's not just a matter of crime and punishment. The good people live, the righteous live, and the bad people die. It's when we understand it under the lens of covenantal justice, we understand that those other nations' chief crime is going against the covenant by trying to destroy Israel. Because they're being influenced by the dark forces behind the scene who know how important Israel has to be to God's plan to save the world. Because if Israel gets wiped out, who can't be born? Again, Jesus, the savior of the world. So it sounds like what we're really saying is God isn't judging Israel or the nations that are attacking Israel for their sin specifically. They're attacking them for just being anti-God. Mm, that's a good question. So Here's where I'd go with that. What does it mean to be anti-God? I would say that in this case, what we're talking about, being anti-God, ultimately, if you're at the level of the Satan, the enemy, right? The demonic forces, mm -hmm. you want to stop God from his plan. He is, he is, go back to the beginning. He has thrown you out of heaven and he's made this prediction that I am going to crush you. I am going to ultimately send one, the serpent crusher, who's going to defeat you. So to be anti-God for them is, I want to stop him. Now, if you look at an individual human, to be anti-God for them, it just might be, well, I don't like God. Like, I don't like his rules. I don't want to follow him. So I'm mm -hmm. going to rebel. But the dark force behind that person has a motivation for why they're influencing them that way. You know, we believe that there are demons. We believe that there are demonic forces that are basically influencing humans to rebel against God. So the individual human might just be thinking, I don't want to follow God's rules, but the demon forces behind them are thinking we need to stop God's plan. So for God to punish sinners, I just think a lot of times we have it in our mind. It's just purely judicial. It's God's like, I have a list. You broke my list. Why'd you do that? I'm going to punish you. I'm asserting that God 
has this plan that involves humans and loving them and being in a planet, a, a heaven and earth combination space where they can live together and be free together and, and have this family. That's his plan. That's what he wants. That's his motivation. You know, in every story, there's characters and it's like, what is their overarching motivation? I think that is God's motivation to, to have people. And the enemy is trying to take those people away. And so for God, when he's punishing humans, where is that motivation coming from? Is it just, I don't like that, that you did that. I am bigger and more powerful than you. Therefore, I'm going to stop you from doing that. I would say God is, he's like the father who is stopping his kids from running into the fireplace. Like you were saying, he's, he's tackling mm-hmm. them out of the way. Where that gets dicey is that sometimes this punishment involves individual humans dying. And again, he's God. Like he has the right to do that. Overall, though, his goal doesn't seem to be to kill humans who are sinners just by the virtue of you and me are still alive. I've sinned a lot in my life. By God's grace, I'm still alive. To me, that points to his overarching plan is to keep human sinners alive and to give them an escape from their sin. So can we use, can we use an example and then we can kind of try to pull out some of these themes from what you're saying? And I sure. have an example in mind. Yeah. So I want to use Joshua 7 as our example. So this is right after the Battle of Jericho. Mm -hmm. So Joshua is just beginning leading the people into the land of Israel. They're just beginning to settle it. They're just beginning to take over some of the nations that are, for lack of a better term, in the way. That's not the part I really want to talk about. Mm. The example that I want to talk about is in Joshua 7. There is a battle that Israel goes into. They lose that battle and Joshua freaks out. He's like, why did you ever bring us over the Jordan? Now we're just going to be destroyed by all our enemies. Hmm. We could have been happy and lived on the other side. And now we're going to die here. What's going on? Right. And God responds, Israel has sinned. This is verse 11 of Joshua 7. Mm -hmm. Israel has sinned. He's even going to use our term for a moment. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. And then we learn that what happened is this guy named Achan has stolen a bunch of stuff from the last victory Mm -hmm. that they were supposed to completely destroy or give over uh, to the temple. Yeah. These were either... I'm doing this from memory, so I'm not totally getting it right, but they're either items that were supposed to be completely destroyed or they were supposed to be given over to the religious life of Israel. There was a battle, and when there's a battle, and all of a sudden you've got this war zone when people's houses and huts that have been sacked and burned, you're going to find things in those houses. There's going to be chests you open with garments and jewels and things. And so this guy took some of that stuff, right? Yeah. This guy, it says that he took a beautiful robe. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just any robe. It was a beautiful <laughs> robe. He took 200 shekels of silver right. and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. So he looks at these things. He looks at the robe. He looks at a little bit of silver. He looks at a little bit of gold. He's like, I want that. And so he grabs it. He takes it. He brings it to his tent. They were specifically commanded not to do this. They were supposed to just leave all the stuff. Don't worry about it. Consecrate Mm -hmm. it to destruction. It's not for you. Achan takes the stuff and it turns into a battle that Israel loses And now Joshua's got to search through the whole nation to find the guy who did this. Yeah. 
Which goes back to kind of our initial episode, right? Like a sin is affecting a nation. Who's to blame? Who is the one who done it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we actually have a moment. Somebody done it. Yeah. There, there's a guy who actually messed up and we can find the specific sin. And so God guides Joshua through this search process. They finally find Achan. Uh, they tell him, hey, man, it's time to be honest. Like yeah. we've we've really sorted this out. Now you yeah. need to be real. Right. And he admits it. He says, it's true. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is what I've done. I took the robe. I took the silver. I took the gold. I hid those things. And that was a mistake. And I'm sorry, is basically what he says. Right. And then it says that Joshua sends some messengers to go get the stuff. So they kind of confirm his story. Mm -hmm. And then they bring out Achan and they bring out his sons and his daughters and his cattle and his donkeys and his sheep and they throw rocks at him until they die Mm -hmm. and then they burn them. Intense. A little overkill. Really, really intense. But then it tells us at the end in verse 26, then the Lord turned from his fierce anger and then the story moves on and they're able to keep conquering the people that are in the way of the right. settling that God wants to do for his people. Yeah. So here in this story, it sort of looks like God just didn't like the thief. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's just looking at an act of theft and he says, this is a problem. I don't want this among my people. Right. It doesn't immediately feel like God is trying to warn the people. If you live as thieves and liars, it will ultimately destroy you in the end. Right. But here, what but, you're trying to argue... Well, can I, can I jump unla- in? Yeah, uh, go for it. I was just going to say, if, if you're an Israelite at the time, and you see a guy who you've been told, this guy is the reason why our army lost the war, because he lied and because he stole, and then he gets stoned to death and his, him and his family get burned, that probably sends a message to you as an average Israelite that maybe I shouldn't steal or lie either. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. There's an you, element of the, har- there's an element of the harsh punishment becomes a really strong warning right. to all of the other people, I guess. So this is a moment where it's really easy to look at it and just, we, you use the term a micro environment. Yes. If we just look at this micro environment, it's really easy to be like, that guy stole stuff and he lied and now he's dead. So if you steal stuff and lie, you're going to be be dead. dead. (laughs) Yeah, it's easy to view it that way. But given what you're saying about this idea of covenant justice, that God's justice isn't just, here's a bunch of stuff I don't like. Let me go attack the things I don't like. Yes. We would say then that the real linchpin of all this is verse 11 when God says to Joshua that Israel as a corporate whole Mm -hmm. has violated the covenant. Mm, Yeah. So then to protect the covenant, Mm. God needs to remove that which violates it. Does that line up? Yes. Yeah. And so let me just try to touch a few parts of that story and you can let me know if this makes sense. Um, Sure. So... The first question I would throw out is, do we really think that Achan was the only guy in Israel who sinned that month? You know, do we no, really... definitely not. Do we really think that there weren't other Israelites who lied at the time or maybe stole something or, you know, had a bad thought about somebody else, which is all violations of the covenant. It's sin. Sin is... I mean, it, do we really think Achan was the only one who sinned? So then what happened in that scenario 
it really does seem like God at times is willing to make examples of individual small-scale sinners for the greater good. This is something I wrestle with because I really do at times want to see God specifically only as Jesus. And in my mind, I'm like, well, if, if Peter stole and Jesus found out, Peter wouldn't tell the other disciples to kill Jesus. So therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't apply. Like that, like, uh, that can't be mm-hmm. true. But we have to believe what the Bible says. It is one whole story. And God, it's not that God changes. It's that he operates differently in different phases of the story. So go back into God's mindset, if we can, if we can try to step into God's mindset. He's got this group of rebellious people out in the wilderness who have been constantly rebelling and complaining and challenging him. And and in his mind, he's thinking, it's kind of like when you're a parent. I'm not a parent, but we've all worked with children. Like You know how hard it is to get them to do things that they don't want to do. It's like pulling teeth to get kids to follow your simple directions. In God's mind, he's like, I am trying to save the world. And we've got this plan that involves this people getting through the wilderness into this land, Israel, where a Messiah can be born who will rescue the whole world. God, like he's, he's looking from the top down view. Mm-hmm. And then he sees in this moment, Israel is rebelling. And I'm sure that there was a lot of rebellion going on besides Achan at the time. And God chooses to make an example out of this Achan guy and make a big deal out of this. He lets Israel lose the battle, and then he tells them, like, yeah, there's sin. There's sin in your camp, and you need to do something about it. Can I stick with your kid analogy for a second? Yeah. So it's kind of like, think about when you were in elementary school. Yeah. And when you were in elementary school, you didn't want to do math. You just wanted to talk to your friends. Yeah. At least that's how I was. Unless you were a nerd. And then, in which case, you didn't have friends to talk to. Boom. Oh, Oh, Take that, nerds. We might edit that out. Maybe not. We'll see. Hey, everyone. This is a note from Aaron from the future. I'm editing the episode and I'm listening to this and I'm realizing it's really ironic. We're making fun of nerds while we talk about theology for hours. So apology to nerds. (laughs) Okay, back to the episode. So in that classroom, you have a teacher where their goal is getting the information into your head. They want you to know more about math so that you can be a more well-rounded human and you could be respectful of authority and, and all the things that go into leading a classroom. Yeah. When you have all the kids trying to talk to one another, there was always this moment where the teacher would finally say, okay, the talking has gone far enough. One of you is getting detention. Yeah. And you would always just kind of hope you weren't the one that the example was made out of. But when you look at when that happens and that one kid is finally given detention, what always frustrated you if you were that one was you felt like three or four others deserved the same punishment you got. Yeah, that happened to me so many times. I got singled out and everyone in the class was talking, but I'd get sent out into the hallway. And it almost feels like you're paying for the wrong of the room. But realistically, what you were doing as an individual, you were involved. It did deserve that punishment. Right. But our human justice says if one person receives a punishment, then everybody should receive a punishment. And I want to stop right there. Zoom way far back into God's mindset is his thought process. I am God. And therefore, every single human must be punished for every single thing that they do. No, his his goal is to get humanity to a point 
where somebody else can die for their sins so that they don't have to. That is his overarching mission and goal. So in the moment where Achan is in the wilderness and he sins, actually all of Israel deserves to die because they've been Mm -hmm. sinning. Exactly, yeah. Read the stories before this story. They are constantly sinning. They are constantly complaining. They are constantly rebelling Mm -hmm. against Moses. They all deserve death. Just like, honestly, Brian, you and I deserve death because we're sinners. Like that is the wages. The wages of sin is death. So Achan, it can seem so brutal in this moment. It does. It, to me, it does seem so brutal. But God is doing this to send a message to Israel saying, basically, you need to be holy. You need to be set apart. This is, this is the consequence of sin. It's death. He wasn't just really ticked off at Achan that day. He was showing Israel, you need to take me seriously, or at least I believe that is the interpretation stance I'm taking. He was showing Israel that they needed to take the covenant seriously. And honestly, I think most people, because th- think about who, who are the people in the wilderness, right? This is a group of people. They probably don't even really know most of them that much about who Abraham even was. They probably don't even know that much about Adam and Eve. Most of these people are the children and grandchildren of slaves that lived in Egypt their entire life. So they're, they're disconnected from this big overarching plan. Like mm-hmm. they, they, don't, they don't know what's going on. God has all the pieces they don't. So in the moment, they're just like, why is God being mean? Why is he condemning people? Why, like, why doesn't he give us more manna? And God is thinking, I, you don't see it, but I'm trying to save the world. And we're in phase you know, two of the process. We've got a bunch more phases mm-hmm. to go. Just stay alive, <laughs> you know? And there are some who might challenge what I'm saying because they're saying, oh, well, then you're saying that God's justice isn't important and that, you know, when people sin, it's not important, that God doesn't respond to sin with justice. The ultimate sin in God's eyes, I would say, is, would be the rejection of his son. It's the rejection of his work to save humanity. Mm-hmm. That's what sends people to hell. And so Achan, unknowingly, what he didn't know was by violating the covenant, he was messing up God's plan to save the world. And he didn't, Absolutely. He, he didn't get that. Yeah. He wasn't <laughs> able to see that. And, and anytime actually, in the Old Testament, that's what they're doing. So let's, let's do a little bit of that zooming out, because here we have this moment with Joshua where a bunch of people are sinning, but one guy really messes up and yeah. one guy really pays for it. Yeah. And it looks like what happens is the people are in violation of the covenant. One family gets singled out and then the rest of the people are able to continue in the covenant. Yeah. Let's compare that to just one leader before. When Moses was leading the people of Israel, there were times when the people were in sin. And admittedly, we're talking about like group idolatry in this moment. Like we're talking Mm -hmm. about the golden calf. We're not just talking about taking a few bits of gold and silver, not to minimize Achan's sin, but we are talking about things that are a little bit different. Yes. But God's uh, response... You're talking about specifically when Moses is on the mountain talking to God about the Great Commandments and he comes down and he sees the people of Israel just partying and worshiping a golden calf. And then there's this moment of intense justice that comes afterwards, right? Well, even before we get to, there is some intense justice that comes from that sin. But I I can't think of the actual verse reference offhand, but there's a moment where God is talking with Moses and basically says, hey, what if we just started over? What if we got (laughs) rid of all those people just me, you, and your family. We'll, we'll restart this thing. You know, it's the classic IT 
solution. Have you tried turning it off and back on again? He's kind of like, we'll just start this thing over and we'll begin with you. So in one generation, from one leader to the next, we've gone from God's plan being, we'll wipe out most of the people and start fresh, to now we're down to just that one family can be dealt with and the rest of us can continue on. Yeah, that's such a good point. And so it's like we're already watching the scope of wrath get narrower and narrower and narrower so that more people can continue on. And like you're saying, the line of the Messiah can continue forward and a nation receiving blessing from God can become a blessing to the world at large. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And, And talking about the scope of wrath, it's important to remember God's wrath, we often think of it as hyper-focused on individual sins, but that's kind of like thinking like an army general is hyper-focused on individual soldiers in a war, when really he is fighting a force. That is his mindset. Yes, And so I think when God is fighting sin, his mindset is not just like, I am going to judiciously go through every single sinner and every single sin they've ever done, and I'm going to just fight them on it. He is trying to free humanity from a force that has enslaved them. So that that's kind of the picture to have in your mind when you see God fighting sin. He always knows what he's doing. He always has the bigger picture plan in mind. So everything we've just been talking about is really about how God's wrath deals with Israel. And I think we've come to some conclusion about that, or we we can see a bit of a clear path forward of God isn't just focused on how many Israelites can I kill. He's focused on how can I keep the plan of saving the world going. Yeah. And that, I think, makes a lot of sense of how God's wrath works with the other nations. Yes. You know, thinking about if... I was going to say, if I have a neighbor, I do have neighbors. I think pretty much it. Most people have neighbors. Can we say everybody has neighbors? <laughs> like if you live really uh, spread out, if your neighbor is like half a mile down the road, do they still yeah. count as a neighbor? Technically, everybody has neighbors. Yeah, that would be okay. that would be in the definition of neighbor. Okay. Like the, people in, like the, the, the people in my neighborhood are my neighbors, but I also consider the people in my city my neighbors, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah. It's just a, it's a narrow scope of neighbor and then a bigger scope of neighbor. That makes sense to me. I have neighbors. We all do. We just concluded. And there are things that my neighbors can do that annoy me that I'm going to kind of just let go. Like mm. if my neighbor, I remember when my wife and I were living in Jersey, there was an apartment complex that we lived in where each apartment had one assigned spot in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And then there were a few visitor spots and everyone was always fighting over the visitor spots. And what would happen was our neighbor would always park his car in our spot mm-hmm. so that his girlfriend or whoever could use his assigned spot and we were always like super frustrated at that (laughs) but that's one of those things that's like annoying i'm not gonna like bust down his door and try and fight him or like i think we left a note on his car once like we did little things like that but we didn't really try to turn it into a fight whereas if my neighbor decided he's gonna try to murder members of my family 
Right. Now we've got a different thing. Yeah. Now I am going to actively work towards getting rid of him. Not in like a murder way, but like in a keeping him back from my family kind of way. Like there's different levels of ways that we protect ourselves from the threats of those beyond us. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. I I think this is the analogy that pops into my head when we're talking. So we're talking about neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. L- let's say, well, okay, let me say this first. If we're operating in the Bible stories under kind of this idea that the wages of sin is death, Mm -hmm. that means that without Jesus, everybody is going to die eventually, right? Eventually and eternally. And eternally. So Mm -hmm. keep that in mind. Like, here's an analogy. Let's say this is very fictional, and I'm not bringing Christian ethics into this. This is just secular ethics, right? Sure. So let's say you are the mayor of a city and there is a bomb in the city that is going to destroy all of the neighborhoods right and so you are moving towards defusing that bomb but then there's a neighborhood that's just like we want to touch that red button like we want <laughs> that's we shiny want the bomb we want that like we what does this button do and then you explain to them like hey listen that button's going to kill you it's going to kill all of us i need to defuse the bomb and they're just like but i want to touch it So you have two options. Either you wipe them out to keep them from touching the button and then they die. Or you let them touch the button and then you die and everyone dies and they they die. It's, It's just death for everyone right? It just creates complete mass destruction instead of a little bit more selective destruction. Yes. And so I see God operating very often the same way. It's not just him being like, oh, you're bad. You're dead. It's him (laughs) saying the world (laughs) is bad. I love this analogy. The world is bad. Mm -hmm. I'm going to defuse the bomb. And then everyone's just like, I want to touch the button. And he has a choice. Do I let him destroy? Do I let this person destroy everyone and take everyone down with them? Or do I destroy them to keep them from touching the button? And ultimately, he's trying to defuse the bomb. Once the, once the bomb is defused, he's going to operate way differently because there's no button to press. And when Jesus dies and comes back from the dead, death is defeated. So the, the game is changed. And that's why God is not going around today wiping out sinners or telling Christians hey, raise up a Christian army and go into other nations and invade them and destroy them. That's not the goal. Like the threat, you know, we, we've often said of Satan, there's the analogy of like, he's a, he's a lion who's been declawed, right? The threat mm-hmm. is gone. The bomb has been diffused. So now things are different. God didn't change, but he's in a different phase of his plan. So I like that analogy. I think it's really helpful. I think there's one weakness that it Good. has. Hit me with it. And the weakness, Wait, I what? Think, my analogy? You're saying that my, my limited human brain couldn't come up with the perfect analogy? How dare you? You're How just dare being you, real. Sir. You're being real weak, brah. Oh, brah. Whenever we disagree with each other, can we go like California surfer voice? Brah. Do you, do you think that'd be brah. helpful? Derek. I just don't know, brah. Derek, what are you doing here? Perfect. This is the Californians. I just, I just really wanted you to do that. That's the only reason I was pushing back. Okay, what what's wrong no, with my so, analogy? Hit me with it. So the one weakness that I'm seeing is it's defending against something that's destructive. Whereas Israel was bringing about the Messiah 
who would stop the already destructive thing. So I know you've used the analogy a lot of sin is like a virus or a disease that's loose. Yeah. And Jesus is the one who brings the cure to that disease. Right. So Israel is almost like the lab where the cure for the disease is being worked on. Yeah. Like they're in the process of getting the cure ready. Right. And if a bunch of people are like, I don't know what's going on in that lab. I don't like it. I don't like those people. Let's burn the lab down. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost like, okay, you're, you're trying to destroy the thing that's going to keep you alive. And they're like, no, no, we don't like that lab. Burn it to the ground. And if the lab burns down, the the bomb goes off or the virus gets unleashed or whatever. Exactly. And, And so once Jesus is on the scene, the cure is now complete. The bomb is diffused. Like you were saying. Right. And now it's not like, Oh, if we burn the lab down, then the, you know, cure will be gone. It's like, no, if you burn it down, the cure is already out there. It's already free. It's already available. So now we don't need to go and attack these different nations that want to get rid of the cure. They're simply rejecting the thing that's going to keep them going. Yes. Do you think that that tweak makes it stronger or am I just adding new images to things? Both and probably. I like it. I think it's good. I think it's that's, that's a helpful analogy as well. So the, the overarching point that we've been trying to make is that the story of the Bible, the story of history, the story of God, it's all about Jesus. And much of the actions that God takes in the Old Testament are about his covenantal justice. It's about protecting the future. In sending wrath against Israel, God is protecting Israel from itself. He's protecting the covenant, protecting the future, the Messiah. He's paving the way for the new covenant. He's protecting the future. When God sends wrath and judgment against the Egyptians or the Philistines, he's protecting Israel, which means he's protecting the birth of the Messiah, which means he's protecting the future, and he's protecting me, and he's protecting you. Everything falls underneath covenantal justice. And we see glimpses of this covenantal justice and love when God does things that seem to go against the crime and punishment mentality. Like just for one example, Jonah, right? Mm -hmm. The story of Jonah. The city of Nineveh was bad. They were evil, wicked. wicked people, just so violent, so horrible. It wasn't like VeggieTales where they threw shoes at people. They were bad. They were shoving spears through people and lining the walls of their city with spears. Like you show up to this city and it's just people's corpses on on spears. And so did these people deserve to die? Yeah, absolutely. Like if, if you're just looking from like a purely crime and punishment mentality, the city had committed crimes just like Sodom and Gomorrah, it would be totally underneath God's proper jurisdiction of judgment to just drop a fireball on the whole city. What does he do? He sends Jonah to Nineveh. It's a country that's not Israel. It's a country that was horrible, horrible, horrible people. They deserved wrath. Absolutely. Probably even more so than Israel. And yet God takes compassion on them for no reason, nothing they did to earn it. He just simply has compassion and sends Jonah to preach to them, to convert them to following the way of Yahweh. And that's a success story, even though Jonah was a prophet who wanted to see them punished. And that's a whole nother conversation. 
Um, yeah, there, there's such an interesting reversal that happens in that story where you're totally right. If we're just looking at what crimes deserve to be punished, then the crimes of Nineveh are so much worse than the crimes of Aiken. Yes. Like Aiken so steals a, a few things. These guys are violent, vicious people. And it helps make a lot of sense of why Jonah is so nervous about going there and like, you oh, yeah. really want to fix those people? Right. Like, you really want to redeem them? Like, if anyone's a prime candidate for wrath, it's those guys. Mm-hmm. And yet we see when grace is extended to them, mm-hmm. or when, I guess, really the the warning is extended to them before mm-hmm. grace is extended. First, they're just being told, hey, 40 days, you're going to die. And that's really all that they're given. And they choose to ask God for compassion, and God takes that compassion on them. He chooses to operate graciously with them. And that's the real indicator of going back to that big plan. What does God really want to do in the long run? He wants to deal generously with people because his grace is able to change people. Yeah. Think of it like you're down on the ground and God's up in the sky, right? Like not really, but just in this analogy. And sure, God has this picture up in the sky where if you, if there was no clouds and you just looked at it, you would see it. You would see this beautiful picture of how humans have sinned and they deserve wrath and they deserve destruction, but God loved people so much he didn't want anyone to perish. And so he, you know, it's it's the cross, it's Jesus. And so if, if the clouds were gone, you could just see that whole picture, right? Mm-hmm. And then let's say instead there's clouds and then one day you're out walking and the clouds kind of open up in a pocket and it's on a pocket of wrath, right? In the picture. And you see, you see just that wrath and you think, mm-hmm. oh, God is wrathful and he hates sinners and he wants to punish us and kill us. That's God. And then another guy is walking and he sees the clouds open up and he just sees the cross and he just sees God's mercy. And he's like, oh, God's merciful. Like he doesn't care if sinners sin. He actually is fine. He's cool with it. Like go do what you want. Jesus died so you can do whatever you want. Like it's an incomplete picture. And I think the Old Testament gives us windows. The clouds open up and we see windows into the whole big picture. The story of Achan is this window of God's wrath. It's God saying, I take sin really, really seriously. And then we look at the stories in the New Testament and we see the clouds opening up on God's grace and his mercy. If you peel back all the clouds, you see it's all one big story. It's not Mm -hmm. God. He's not bipolar. He's not changing from day to day. And so the story of Achan, I believe, again, it's my interpretative lens, but God is showing Israel sin is really, really important. It's important that you take it seriously. I've got a big picture thing I'm doing that you don't even get. This guy's going to take the fall so that for the next six months or whatever, before you mess up again, you're going to take me seriously. This is where we're going. Then he gets to Nineveh and he wants to show us this is a glimpse of what he wants to do. Like he's with this horrible nation that deserved death. He wanted to show the world, this is what my grace and mercy looks like. And this is what I'm building towards. I want to do what I did in Nineveh. I want to do it to the whole world. And so it's only when we look at the meta narrative of scripture, when we peel back the clouds and we actually look from Genesis to Revelation at the whole story that we see any given Old Testament or New Testament passage for what it really is. Yeah, that's so important. I think what you were saying here and even in the beginning of when we look beyond the micro environment, Mm. it's when we only look at the little 
pictures that we miss what's going on and how they link together. Like if you went to a friend's house that you've never been to before and you just stood in the corner of their living room and you looked into the corner, Mm. like you just put your head in the corner and you didn't talk to anyone and you just kind of stared at that. You'd be like, man, my friend's house is really boring. (laughs) It's like, well, it's not that the house is boring. It's that you focused on the most boring part and you chose not to look anywhere else. Yeah. So if we just look at the story of Aiken and we're like, wow, God gets angry. Like, okay, in this one moment. Yeah. But there's so much else we need to see about him. Or if we just look at Nineveh and we say, see, God doesn't really care about sin. Yeah. You're looking at just one moment, whereas you have to be able to keep looking back to the whole story. If you miss out on that, you miss the point of all the individual stories. Yes. And let me just give an example of what it looks like to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. This is a really important practice for those of you guys listening to start to stop reading the Old Testament God and think he's a separate character than Jesus to read it with this lens of what the whole story tells us. So if I'm reading the story of Achan, there's a guy who sins, Israel loses a war because of that sin, and then he gets put to death. What I walk away from when I read that passage is, here's, here's my key takeaways. One, the wages of sin is death. God is showing us this. Achan died for his sin, not because he was the worst of the worst, but because all sin deserves this. And then that story makes me realize I deserve that. Like mm-hmm. I deserve that. I, what, what Achan got, I've done worse things. I, I've done worse things than, than steal a robe from army that's been defeated. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't that doesn't seem like that intense compared to some of the things that maybe us in the modern world have done. And so I read that realizing I deserve that death. And then I look ahead and I realize, but Jesus loved the world. And not just Jesus, but Yahweh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, loved the world so much that way back in this story in the Old Testament I'm reading about Achan, they were working to build a future where no one had to die for their sin. And even though I deserve death just like Achan got death, I don't have to have death. I can have life. I can have freedom. I can have repentance. I don't, I don't come away from that passage saying, God wants to kill me because I'm a sinner. I come from that passage saying, wow, look, God was fighting so that sinners didn't have to die. And this is just one really ugly, messy part of that story. But the whole story gives me so much hope. I, I just want to make sure people understand that, you know, whenever you talk about this kind of paradigm, there's always the people who are asking the question, you know, so are you saying that the wrath of God doesn't actually exist? And now, now that Jesus has died, you know, wrath isn't real. Listen, wrath absolutely does exist. We don't read the stories of the Old Testament and just whitewash over them and say, oh, this didn't happen because the God we see in the Old Testament seems to be different than Jesus. We have to understand Jesus God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all the same. The wrath of God does exist, Mm -hmm. but it always takes place under the banner of covenantal justice. We have a God whose heart is consistently to save people and love people. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's this cosmic shift in focus. God's focus has always been the same. It's always been to save people. But as we read the Old Testament and then we get into the New Testament, our focus begins to shift and change. Once we have Jesus paying the death on the cross for the penalty for sinners, 
There's this shift that happens where the focus is no longer on defending Israel at all costs to preserve the Messiah. The Messiah has come. So now we have the birth of the church, a church beginning with 12 disciples, Jews and and many Jewish Hebrew converts, and then Gentiles, which statistically, if you're listening to this, you're probably a Gentile like me and Brian. Now the focus of God's people is no longer defense and preservation, but spreading the gospel, getting the good news of Jesus out into the world. It's a rescue mission, which really, if you go back to Genesis 3, and you look at the prophecy of the snake crusher, it's always been about a rescue mission. Yeah, I think that's so helpful, just keeping that focus. It's easy to start viewing wrath separate from that purpose, separate from keeping the rescue mission going. And then when it's separated from that, it's like, okay, well, it has to be for some reason. And that's when we just start looking at the things that happen right around it. You look at things and say, okay, God's wrath was poured out on Achan. If you don't say, well, there's a rescue mission that's happening and God needs to keep a holy people going so that the rescue mission can go on, You just start looking at the things immediately around it and you think God hates people that steal robes. And that's so missing the point of what's going on there. So yeah, when we keep that whole mission of God in mind, the purpose of wrath becomes a lot more clear. It becomes a lot easier to see what is God doing in these moments where it looks like he's just being angry. Yeah, yeah, you have to keep in mind this is a war and God's wrath looks like him waging war against the forces of darkness. What is the war over? It's about us. It's about his children. It's about the people he wants to save. That's what he's fighting for. And so we can read God's wrath and we can just think, if we just look at it in the micro, we think, oh, God is just petty and angry and he's not even consistent because sometimes he judges some people and sometimes he doesn't judge other people and gives grace to others. Like, what is going on? Why is God like this? You have to remember, he's always one step ahead of the game. He knows way more than us. And consistently, like I don't, I don't believe this is me just, or us just trying to interpret and explain away things. I truly believe when you look at the meta-narrative of scripture, it's all one story that points to Jesus and God is moving towards Jesus in the Old Testament and then moving from Jesus in the New Testament. It's Jesus is, I mean, he's, he's the logos. He's the center of mm-hmm. existence. It's all about him. And we have to read the Bible that way. So all of this is super fun for me to think about. I've really enjoyed kind of walking through this. It is really helpful in reading difficult moments in the Old Testament and making things clear as we see some of those moments of wrath. We got down this trail because we wanted to talk about (laughs) COVID-19. Yeah, we got away from that for a bit. How do we find the link then between this conversation and what we have going on in our current moment? Yeah, that's a great way to end this. So let's talk again about the story, right? The meta narrative of scripture and human history. What is the point? It's saving people. It's rescuing people. It's redeeming people. The world is broken and God is fighting for a new heaven and a new earth We see, we talked about in the earlier episodes, we have two forces of evil in the world. There's the Satan, the enemy, the dark forces, and then there's chaos. There's just from what's been brought into the brokenness and the sin of the world. We have natural disasters and pandemics and things that, you know, maybe they're man-made in a lab. Maybe they just happen out in nature, but there's sicknesses that happen and it's either a part of the dark forces or it's a part of chaos, right? So God is fighting against those things. What does the end of the story look like? No sickness, 
no disease. He mm-hmm. wants those things eradicated. He wants those things destroyed. What does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? Does he go around to the Pharisees and the sinners and strike them with leprosy? Is that what Jesus does? Like, yeah, stuff like that happened in the Old Testament. Again, it's all about context. It's all about what part of the story that was. When Jesus shows up onto the scene, does he operate in a way where he goes around and curses people and causes them to get sick? No, Jesus heals. He's a healer. He goes around and he takes away sickness And then he does something which is even more powerful than healing the body. He heals the soul. He offers forgiveness. He offers the opportunity for repentance. He dies on the cross for sinners. He teaches the apostles to go and spread the gospel. He tells them, go and make disciples of the nation, which is the fulfillment of going back to God's original plan, bringing man and God back together, bringing heaven and earth back together. That's his plan. That's how he operates. Jesus is not in the business of going around and causing pandemics. He's fighting against the sin and the evil and the Satan and the chaos that is behind pandemics and and diseases and natural disasters. So that's, again, I'm talking about the context. When you zoom out and you look at the whole story and then you zoom into our current moment, it doesn't make any sense that God would be the one behind a pandemic like COVID-19. That's a part of a fallen world, and I truly believe that God is fighting against it. And one of the ways that he's doing that is through the church and the mission of the gospel. Because even at the end of the day, if we all get sick and die from COVID-19, which I hope doesn't happen, but if, it, if things got worse, if they took a turn for the worse, guess what? God still wouldn't be defeated because those who have Christ have a bulletproof soul, a COVID-19 proof soul. And yeah, we might go through a little bit of suffering here on earth, but at the end of the day, there's a new heaven and a new earth waiting for us with no sickness and no disease. So that, that would be kind of my, my answer to that question. Yeah, this to me is the explanation that dives a little bit deeper for the conclusions we made in the first episode. When we were yeah. first talking about is COVID-19 God judging a specific group of people or does God use things like this to punish people? We said no to both of those questions. And here we're saying... So here's what God's wrath really does look like throughout the Old well, we Testament. Said, there are these we we said we said that He has done those things in the past, but now we're explaining why He doesn't operate that way now. It's not because He changed; yeah. He's in different phases of His plan. Yes, and it's not yeah, that there. He even causes those things. He's oftentimes He can use the things that the enemy has introduced in the world for His purposes. But right now, his purposes are specifically the gospel being preached. That's, that's the main thing he's about right now. Yeah, I completely agree. I think about the section in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is first announcing his ministry and trying to show people what it is he's here to do. Hmm. He quotes from Isaiah 61. And in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, Mm -hmm. he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Mm -hmm. And after he reads that section, he tells the whole crowd who's really focused on him, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus looked for how do I describe to people The work that I'm doing now, it's all about freedom and release. It's all about oppression being taken away. It's about disease being healed. It's about 
bondage being broken and good news coming to people who yes. are desperate for it. This yeah. is the way that Jesus worked when he was on the earth. And this is the mission that he hands over to his people today. So we, as the people of God, we're called to proclaim the good news of freedom, the good news of hope, the good news that there isn't a God who's looking to slowly destroy the world. He's looking to recreate the world in the image that it was always meant to be. This is where we live today on our side of the cross. This is the work that God is empowering through Christians even right now. This is the message that we get to bring to a scared and quarantined world. Yeah, absolutely. And and just think of this. I mean, could Jesus cause diseases? Like, does he have that power? I mean, just do you remember the story of the fig tree that he cursed? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a scary story. Like, he, he's going out and he sees a, a fig tree and he tries to eat from it and there's no fruit. And he's like, ah, oh, bah, may you never bear fruit again. And the tree just like withers up and dies. That's that's showing the power he has. And it's the same power the God of the Old Testament has. And because that he is that God, like mm-hmm. he can use the chaos that is a part of the world. He can, he can bring that stuff up and use it. If Jesus wanted to, he could curse people and, and make them sick. And yet that's not what we see him doing. It's consistent that once we get to Jesus, God is able to focus intensely on what his main mission has always been from the start, which is rescuing and redeeming humanity. No longer does he have to make examples of people and allow people to die in order to say, hey, you need to take this seriously. He died on the cross himself. He becomes the ultimate example. He becomes the ultimate example. He, through the cross, shows everyone, I am taking this more seriously than you ever could because you can't keep the law on your own. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. And then through his resurrection, he gives us a new way to live, a new way to be human where it's not about, hey, if you sin, you're going to die. But it's about, hey, because you're not going to die and you have this life, now you can live out of it. Now you can openly struggle with your sin before God and not have to fear judgment. You can actually bring your sin to God and say, can you fix this? And he looks at you and says, absolutely, let's begin the process. It's not like you stole, you're going to die. It's you're a thief. Let me tell you about the thief on the cross. Let me tell you about Mm -hmm. how somebody who was literally dying for their sin on a cross next to Jesus was able to then enter into a new life because of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Good Lion podcast. This one, I think more than most, was us really working through something together and Mm. wrestling our way to conclusions or at least a little bit of a path forward. And we hope that this is helpful for you. We don't want to try to come across like we're the experts that have it all figured out. We are students along with you. We just happen to have microphones. So true. Yeah, we do not have it all figured out. We're wrestling and we're just humans. We're just humans who love Jesus and theology. And at the end of the day, we're all just doing our best to try to interpret and figure this stuff out. So if you like our show, thank you so much for listening. If anything that we said has encouraged you or challenged you, we'd love to know. And if you have pushback or follow-up questions, we seriously love that stuff so much. This is one of the main ministries God has us doing right now. So if you want to contact us, you can uh, email us at goodlionnetwork at gmail.com and send us any questions or feedback. 
Um, We'd love to talk to you about it and maybe even read a question or two on the show. So you can send that in. You can also contact us through our Instagram account, which is just at goodlion.io. You can message us there. If you like the show, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes. They help so much. The more reviews we end up getting, the more people end up finding the show. And so you can be a part of helping getting these conversations out just through simply leaving a review on iTunes Mm -hmm. or with sharing these episodes with friends and loved ones that you think might be interested in these conversations as well. Yes. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Thanks, Brian. Anytime, buddy. Our show is part of the Good Lion Podcast Network. We're a network of Christian podcasters uh, that Aaron and I started with our friends. You can check out our website, goodlion.io. You'll find tons of other podcasts that are Christ-centered and encouraging and will help you wrestle through some of the bigger topics in life and theology. Yes, yes. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.